Please be seated. It's really nice to look out and see faces and to see some of you who haven't been here for a long time. It's great to see you in person and to be together. This summer we're working our way through one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament. It's a story of family dysfunction, tragic injustice, and surprising faithfulness. I'm talking about the story of Joseph. Last week, Josh Chatro kicked off our series by introducing us to Joseph's forebears. If you weren't here or haven't had a chance to listen to Josh's sermon, I would encourage you to do so because the story of Joseph doesn't stand alone. It's a multi-generational story of a family and the promises that God made to them. It all begins with Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, to whom God promised land, offspring, and blessing, and through whom God promised to bring blessing to every nation under the sun. Three generations later, though, Abraham's family's a mess, and we are dropped into that mess in Genesis 37, which Tim read for us just a moment ago. So I hope you'll turn there with me. You're going to want to have it open in front of you. You can find it on page 31 in the Red Bibles. So the chapter begins with an ever so brief reminder of where we are in the bigger story. Verse one, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So for one verse, for one verse, everything seems well. Jacob lives with his family in the land that God had promised to Abraham all those years before. But as chapter 37 unfolds and we're introduced to Joseph himself, these things begin to unravel. Verse two, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, even though he eventually becomes the hero of the story, it's hard to like Joseph at the outset. He comes across, frankly, as a spoiled brat who cultivates his father's favoritism by tattling on his brothers. But Joseph isn't the only unlikable character. In their resentment, Joseph's brothers go far beyond any rational response to a spoiled sibling. We're told that they're so blinded by their hatred that they can't even have a civil conversation with him. And then there's Jacob with an astonishing lack of wisdom. Bordering on cruelty, he favors one son over all the others. Somehow Jacob has forgotten how his own childhood was tragically shaped by by favoritism. And so he perpetuates this legacy allowing the same sin to shape the life of his sons. Well, these opening lines introduce us to an unlikable hero, an irrational group of hateful siblings, and a father who is unconsciously cruel. And then things get worse. Verse five. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. 
His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. In the ancient world, dreams were understood to be a means of divine revelation. Not always, but sometimes God revealed his plans in this way. And clearly that's what Joseph thought was going on. And he was eager for his brothers to know. So three times while he's telling them his dream in verses seven to eight, he says, behold, which is the equivalent of saying, pay attention. Can you imagine how irritating this was to his big brothers? Well, to add insult to injury, Joseph has a second dream. In this one, not only is it his brothers who bow down before him, but apparently his parents as well. So even Jacob gets annoyed the second time. And his brothers were told in verse 11, they're filled not only with hatred, but with jealousy. It's a toxic combination that sets us up for the tragedy that follows. So in verses 12 to 17, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers who are watching over the sheep several days journey to the north. Joseph, blind to his brother's seething hatred, wears his fancy cloak. And it's like a red flag to a bull, as we learn in verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. Not only do they want to kill him, such is the extent of their hatred that they plan to discard his body like trash. But as Joseph draws closer, Reuben talks him off the edge. Instead of killing him, they tear off his cloak and drop him in a cistern with no food or water. And then they sit down to eat and discuss what to do. And as they do, a caravan passes by. Judah, sensing a chance to profit, talks the others into selling Joseph as a slave. And so they haul him up and sell him off while Reuben is away, apparently tending to the sheep. But when Reuben returns and discovers that Joseph's gone, he tears his robes in distress. But instead of rushing after him, he goes along with the rest of them in concocting a cover-up. Taking Joseph's cloak, they dip it in the blood of a slaughtered goat, and then they send it back to their father by messenger. But you know, this isn't just a cover-up. This is punishment. The brothers are inflicting as much pain on their father as they can by making Joseph's special cloak the main evidence of his demise, and then by sending it with a servant instead of going themselves. So we read in verse 34 that when the bloody robe arrived, <clears throat> Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. The chapter 37, it's like a crime scene. We know the crime and who committed it, but what caused it? How did we get here? And what can we possibly learn about God and his promises in the midst of a dark family drama like this one? Well, the first thing we learn, which is painfully obvious, is the destructive power of sin. 
the destructive power of sin. So this is not a classic hero story with stark lines drawn between good and evil. It's murkier than that. It's a little bit more like a Marvel movie. The sin in the story runs deep and it runs broad. And there's no single cause for the tragedy that unfolds. Yes, the tragedy is rooted in Jacob's favoritism for Joseph. But Jacob is only the product of his own messy upbringing. The sin of his father haunts him like a ghost. Then there's Joseph's naive self-centeredness. Although he's the innocent victim, we know that he's not without sin of his own. Perhaps he's even egged on his brothers and encouraged their resentment. Finally, there's the complex sin of the brothers. It begins with jealousy, which gives way to envy, leads to resentment, and then ultimately boils over into hatred. It's a hatred that so distorts their view of reality that they decide the best way to handle their problems is to strip their little brother naked, sell him into slavery, fake his death, and then break their father's heart. And that was option B. The sin in this chapter is widespread, strangely collaborative, and incredibly destructive. And the grief, it's just as widespread as the sin. I wonder if you noticed in this chapter that there are three torn robes. The first is Joseph's, the victim, whose life is torn apart by the sin of his brothers. Then there's Reuben's. Although not directly responsible for selling his brother into slavery, he shares the guilt of his brothers and he shreds his robe as a sign of regret. Sin tears apart the lives of the guilty, not just the innocent. And finally, there's Jacob's robe, which is torn in grief. He isn't directly involved in the crime, but his life too is ripped apart as a result. The guilty, the innocent, and the aggrieved all suffer from the destructive power of sin. Now, I've gone into so much detail exploring the sin of this family because I want to drive home a basic but important point. Our sin, it matters more than we think. It matters more than we think. When I was about 13 years old, I found myself saying, I'm sorry, a lot. I think this is pretty normal when you're 13. Usually it was to my mother in response to some household infraction or some minor cruelty involving my siblings. And one afternoon after about the fifth I'm sorry of the day, my mother snapped back at me and said, don't say it if you don't mean it. If the only thing you're sorry for is getting caught, then I don't want to hear it. My mother's words exposed something found not just in 13-year-old boys, but in Christians of all ages. We tend to think about sin in a transactional way. We know that when we sin, we need to confess it to God. And when we confess, he forgives our sin and wipes it away as if it never took place. So we confess, forget, and move on. And because we haven't taken it seriously we soon fall back into the same sin and repeat the pattern all over again. Now in God's economy, because of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, when we confess our sin, God forgives us. 
He washes us clean and he wipes away our sins so that we're no longer guilty. But in our human economy, the impact of that sin lingers. Think of it this way. Sin is like a sharp blade. With every cruel word, selfish act, lustful thought, hateful stare, you're slicing and stabbing at those around you. You're drawing blood, you're leaving scars, and that sin has a cumulative effect. It's shaping your children's character. It's affecting your coworkers. It's opening wounds, it's leaving scars. Your sin is not just something between you and God. It is shaping the world around you and it must be dealt with. We're called not just to confess our sin, but to repent of it, to turn around and walk away from it. Just imagine, imagine how differently life would have been for Joseph and his brothers if their father had recognized his sin of showing favoritism, repented of it, rejected it, and been a father in a different way than his own father had been to him. This opening chapter of Joseph's story shows us the destructive power of sin, but thankfully that's not all. It also shows us the possibility of faithfulness. Now there's a lot of debate among scholars about how we are to look at Joseph in in this chapter. Is he an arrogant brat who has to learn the hard lesson of humility through slavery before he can move God's plan forward? Or is he a misunderstood hero, unfairly portrayed, who never actually puts a foot wrong? I think the truth is probably somewhere in between. Although our natural tendency is to think of Joseph as a spoiled brat in chapter 37. He's never described in an overtly negative manner. Naive, yes. Thoughtless, yes. Selfish, almost certainly. But not hateful, not vindictive, not jealous like his brothers. And then there's this rather strange scene in verses 12 to 17, which gives us more insight into Joseph's character than I think we realize at first glance. This is what it says. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send, the, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So it was 50 miles from Hebron to Shechem. And Joseph was being asked to take a four-day trip on foot by himself to a city where his brothers had recently slaughtered every adult male. It's an awful story told three chapters earlier in Genesis 34. So this was not an easy errand. But in verse 13, Joseph's response to being asked to go is a single positive word best translated as, here I am, or I'm ready. Perhaps he wasn't so spoiled after all. When he makes it to Shechem then, Joseph is given the perfect excuse to turn back when he can't find his brother's. 
but he presses on going another 14 miles farther to Dothan in order to seek their welfare as the errand is described in verse 14. Now he may seem spoiled in the early verses of this chapter, but here, here we see him as faithful, obedient, and willing to take risks. And that's the man who continues to emerge in the chapters that follow. Uh, Two things in particular that I want you to see in these early glimpses of Joseph. First, in spite of the train wreck that is his family, he begins to emerge as a faithful man. He's a sinner caught up in a complex web of sinners. But even so, he's faithful to the task that he's given. For those of you who feel stuck or trapped by the sin of those around you or by your own poor decisions, know that God can free you to be faithfully his. Just because your family is a mess doesn't mean that you are disqualified or disabled. Faithfulness is not about perfection. It's about doing the next right thing and anyone can do the next right thing. Second, faithfulness and suffering, they go hand in hand. Joseph may have been unwise to point out his brother's flaws back in verse two, but he wasn't wrong to question their judgment. And part of the reason his brothers hated him was because he knew the difference between good and evil and he was willing to side with good. We tend to think that if we do the right thing, then everything's gonna work out just fine. But time and again, the Bible tells a different story. Being faithful often leads to being misunderstood, persecuted, and even punished. Faithfulness and suffering go hand in hand. And we are to endure this suffering because something greater is always at stake. The difference between the suffering that comes from faithfulness and the suffering that comes from sin is that the former leads to glory and the latter to destruction. Now there's one last lesson to learn from this chapter and that's the fact that God never loses control. And you may have noticed that God is never mentioned in this chapter. And over the next 13 chapters, the story of Joseph He rarely figures into the story in an overt way, but he's always present. And there are hints of his presence throughout this chapter. At the outset, remember we're told that Jacob and his family lived in the land of their forefathers. A reminder that this is the story of God's promises, not just the crazy tale of a dysfunctional family. The repetition and expansion of Joseph's dream indicates that God has a plan for this boy that cannot be thwarted. The random man who gives Joseph directions in the fields outside Shechem and the seemingly coincidental appearance of the Midianite traders at Dothan show that God is moving in the background. And then there's the final verse of the chapter where we learn that Joseph, through no effort of his own, becomes a slave in the home of one of the most important and influential men in the kingdom of Egypt. One way to read chapter 37 is as a description of what happens when a family pushes God to the margins and shuts him out. An essentially secular story 
driven by sin and selfishness. But there's another way to read this chapter, which is the story of how God stays faithful and sovereign, even when his people rebel. I love how one Jewish commentator describes the relationship between these two ways of reading chapter 37. He says, the secularity of the story is superficial. The secularity of the story is superficial for the narrative is infused with a profound sense that God's guiding hand imparts meaning and direction to seemingly haphazard events. It seems like God is absent, but is he? Not for a minute. He is always sovereign and always present even when the world seems to be unraveling around us. This opening chapter of Joseph's story ends with our main character in slavery. It is not a promising beginning, but it is a very human beginning. We all start out as slaves to sin, but God in his grace has dealt with our sin and all of its destructive power, and he's invited us to new life in Jesus Christ. A life of faithfulness, one step at a time. He will never abandon us. He will not let evil win the day. He is always ultimately in control. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you and praise you that even though you are never mentioned in this chapter, you are always present, always active, that your grace triumphs. We thank you that even in the face of the destructive power of sin, you keep your promises, you rescue and redeem your people, and you make it possible for us to walk faithfully before you one step at a time. Lord, give us the confidence that comes from knowing that you're in control. Give us freedom to walk faithfully, and give us the courage to turn away from our sin, to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.